thought I'd start with um, <clears throat> something light. It's always good to, you know, start with something funny. And it's even funnier when it's about me, I think, because I do some silly things. Um, a couple of years ago at uni, I was giving a speech, um, and afterwards somebody came up to me and told me what a nice address I had given, and I misheard and thought they said what a nice dress I had. And I was like, thank you. I don't get a chance to wear it very often, so I really appreciate that you noticed. And then quickly realized that they had actually complimented me on what I was saying, not what I was wearing. So noted, it won't happen today because I know better and I'm not wearing a dress. So just so, just so we're clear. Now we come to the third chapter today in the book of Ruth. And I thought we should start with recapping where we've been uh, for the last couple of weeks, if you've been here or if you haven't. Um, you might remember that we've been surprised by these first two chapters in this funny little book, um, and it seems to pack a few punches quite early on. So we meet these two widows, Naomi and Ruth, and we hear of Ruth's commitment, not just to her mother-in-law, Naomi, but also to her God. And we're stunned by the depths of suffering that these two women share, but also by the way that God continues to work behind the scenes. And first through this gleaning system that Carl talked about last week, which was basically a Jewish sort of welfare system, but also through the relationship that these two women share with each other when everything else seemed against them. Now we see the possibilities begin to unfurl when we meet Boaz, who is a distant relative of Naomi's husband's family. So this distant relative Boaz comes onto the scene and we see him showing this hesed love um, to these two women. Now hesed, as we talked about last week quite a lot and we'll cover again today, is this kind of love that someone gives to someone else out of no obligation and no pressure but because one person has the resources, the care and the time to give to another person and that other person doesn't. And so we see Hesed love through Boaz giving of himself to these two women without any obligation or expectation of return. So today we move into chapter 3 where perhaps after being surprised and stunned we might be seduced. Oh, But there is a further S word that we'll discover a little bit later on just to keep you interested. Um, so I thought we would start with reading the whole of chapter 3 um, as the text goes. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now, Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? He asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. 
Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, he gave me these six measures of barley saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens. For the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. So chapter 3 seems to feature quite a lot on these three main characters that we've met in the first two. And these characters make some interesting decisions during this chapter. So it's a bit of a character study, and there are a few random things going on that we do need to unpack as we go. Now, the chapter seems to start with what looks like a bit of matchmaking from a mother-in-law. Now, perhaps you have had um, a mother-in-law, a mother, or a mothering figure in your life uh, try to do, at one time or another, a little bit of matchmaking with someone else. Um, I had an older lady when I was at Kerry who arranged for me to have coffee with this guy that she thought I should marry. Um, And she thought it was a great idea, but basically we had nothing to talk about. And I knew we were in trouble when after about 10 or 15 minutes, he asked me if I had any pets. Now, for pet lovers there, I appreciate that this is an important part of somebody's character, but it was very early on for us to already be discussing whether or not we had pets, as if there was nothing else to talk about, which there wasn't. So, is Naomi simply trying to do this? Is she simply matchmaking or interfering or being a bit of a busybody uh, as a mother-in-law? It seems that she is trying to put a plan in motion here, but I think it's for a bigger purpose than this. She's trying to provide some security for Ruth. So in the last chapter, we see that Naomi suddenly becomes aware of this said working in her own life. And she can sense that God is still very much active when for so long she has worried and wondered where he even was at all. All of a sudden, she is positively speaking to Ruth. This awareness of said seems to transform her and give her new life again. Now, Of course she would still be in deep hurt, and we can't move forward to this romantic, apparently, uh, chapter and ignore this grief that still would be lingering for Naomi. We can't forget that deep hurt that she would still be in, but we do move forward, and I'm sure she would have had an awareness of how fragile life is as she moved ahead in her life. Now Naomi knew that Ruth would not have had much bargaining power on her own, to find a man, 
Regardless of whether she had an amazing personality or stunning good looks, she would not have had a dowry or any political advantage to bring to the table. So it might sound horribly unromantic, but marriages at this time were often like business deals, um, used to cement ties between families and protect alliances. So she would not have had much to offer, being without a family line of men who would have stood up for her and represented her. And just sticking with the mother-in-law was possibly not working in her favour either. And of course, she was foreign, uh, Ruth, and so, so far had also been struggling to conceive and may have been dealing with this infertility, which even today we hear about as being so heartbreaking. Naomi knew that she would have to be pretty strategic and clever in order to find a spouse that would look out for Ruth. So all of this she was doing out of said. She wasn't looking out for herself at all, but for Ruth, her daughter-in-law. Now Naomi would be giving up the blessing that Ruth had been in her life, because as soon as Ruth found a husband, she would be leaving Naomi, and Naomi would be alone uh, again in her life. So she chose to give up uh, something that's this close to her for the sake of someone else. She had spied uh, Boaz and decided to choose him as a prospective suitor, um, because of his connection to Ruth through working in his field, but also because of his familial obligation to help, and because of his godly character that we've already um, seen being expressed. Naomi tells Ruth just to send non-verbal signals, don't say anything, um, just show Boaz that marriage is in view, so wash, get dressed up, put some perfume on, and look good. And then lie at his feet and wait for him to tell her what to do. This was Naomi's plan. Now, so far we feel like we know Ruth a little bit, hopefully. We know that her character has so far been quite reputable, and she's made a commitment to God and to stick with her mother-in-law. But this doesn't, of course, make her exempt from making mistakes, like all of us. But I really don't think that Ruth would choose this moment in the story to sabotage her chances and her reputation for a better future. She's been given trust from Boaz, and I think it would be against what we know of her to dash that trust. So after the first and second chapter uh, in Ruth, it would be um, the third part of the story is not going to show a conniving or deceitful Ruth who does something to trap Boaz like something we might see in Desperate Housewives. And the dialogue between Ruth and Boaz during the scene has reinforced that they both have godly and good intentions for what is happening and right character. Now, plenty of people do speculate about what she might have gone to Boaz for in the middle of the night, all dressed up, but I think we need to keep in mind the wider story and also what we know of these characters previously uh, when we read this chapter. The circumstance does seem to tease us with a bit of a late-night rendezvous. Uh, it's dark, there's been food and drink consumed, um, a man and a woman being alone together, which wouldn't have been a common occurrence in that time. But then she goes and lies at his feet and uncovers them. Like, what does that even mean? Knowing what we know of Ruth gives us some hints, but I guess we don't know for sure what actually happened. But I think knowing Ruth and knowing the Hesed working in her own life and her relationship with God, we do not expect Ruth to all of a sudden be inappropriately suggestive or to taint her reputation in this moment. So we may have all done embarrassing things in the past in the pursuit of love, perhaps. We may have, hypothetically speaking, of course, 
<sighs> dropped off some brownie in the middle of the night in somebody's letterbox, um, or a, a mixtape that you may have put together with somebody in mind, it was a long time ago. And I realized quickly I can't do anonymous brownie because I make a brownie about every second day and everyone knows it. And so it doesn't work to be anonymous when you do something so frequently anyway. So anyway, quickly realized that wasn't, wasn't an option. So now I only give brownie platonically, be pleased to know. But all, <laughs> hypothetically speaking, obviously, obviously. Um, she's, Ruth is placed in this sort of tempting situation, but this is not one of those embarrassing romantic encounters for Ruth, I don't think. She doesn't use this to her own advantage, but instead she's thinking about her mother-in-law and how she can better her situation. It's Naomi that she's thinking of again in this moment, not herself. So this leads her to change the plan and to break the rules a bit. She decides to speak up, which, as we've heard, for a woman and also for a widow, was almost unheard of in that time. So we encounter Ruth speaking when Naomi had told her strictly not to say anything and to wait for Boaz uh, to take his lead. But instead, Ruth takes initiative and she says what she wants. So by appealing to Boaz as this guardian or king, kinsman redeemer, she reminds him of his familial obligation to her. But by suggesting this, she's also bringing up this idea of land. So she is asking Boaz to redeem land for her, which means that she is anticipating a child who will inherit the land. So she's making a commitment to try and rescue Naomi's family because a child would have been then in Naomi's line even though she's probably struggled to get pregnant for a long time before, and she has no guarantee that this time she will get pregnant. So she makes this commitment wanting the best thing for Naomi. Now, Naomi was wanting the best for Ruth, but Ruth wasn't prepared to just leave her just yet. This has said that she has been exposed to, this awareness of God working in her life has kind of been buzzing around in her veins, and she can't help but try and offer this back to Naomi in this situation. It's just bouncing back and forth between these two women, this has said. They can't help but try to help each other without any obligation or guilt from the other person and without any expectation of reward or that they'll get something back. I remember a couple of years ago, I was in the McDonald's drive-thru and I decided to be... Um, to try and do something nice for somebody else by paying for the person in the car behind me's meal. But then, as soon as I had done it, and I was then waiting at the window in front for my meal to come through, and I could see the guy telling this previous car that their meal had been paid for, and I remember thinking, oh, they're going to you know, hop out, come round to my window and thank me profusely from the bottom of their heart for what I'd done for them, and I'd have to say, no, no, it's fine, don't, don't even worry. And already I was thinking about the reward and how good I would feel knowing I'd done something good for someone else. So Hesed is not like this, because straight away when you're thinking about how you need to be gracious, you're probably not being very gracious in that situation. So Hesed is not that. It's not thinking of what you're going to get out of it and how good you might feel and the warm fuzzies and how you've changed somebody else's life. It's not having that obligation or expectation of anything else going on. So the stage has been set. These two women have hatched this plan, and even though Ruth has slightly deterred from this plan by speaking up, uh, this challenge has been laid down. And so we wait for Boaz's reply to this unusual offer. Now again, we don't know much of Boaz. We've only met him in the previous chapter, and his response to the bold Ruth seems to be admirable at first glance. 
He listens and he responds with respect. But in every way possible, he's perfectly entitled to send Ruth away. It's not his problem to sort her family's situation out. There is a closer relative to Ruth that is obligated to help. So Boaz could easily shrug his shoulders and palm her off, put her in the too hard basket and just leave it alone. Now some may have pictured Boaz in the past as one of those mysterious older bachelor types, maybe thinking of Mr. Darcy from Pride and Prejudice or Colin Firth. Uh, More accurately though, wait for it, Boaz may have already been married with sons. I'm sorry if that shatters your romantic illusions about where the story might be going, but I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news. Um, But to be a man of his standing in society and to not be married without children would have been unheard of. He just wouldn't have got to that place. Um, So, however, fret not. Knowing this about Boaz, I think, even more reinforces his good character because the risk for him in this encounter with Ruth would have been even greater if he had sons of his own because he had their inheritance to consider already and he didn't need extra sons to be splitting his wealth among. And particularly not with a foreign woman. But instead, his seed comes into play again and Boaz steps in to protect Ruth and also in turn to protect Naomi. So then he chooses to speak value over Ruth and he doesn't banish her from his side. He says that she is of noble character. Now, in the eyes of society, Ruth was a widow and possibly barren. So she would have had low worth. But according to Boaz, she has worth that he will protect on her behalf in the community. Now, he does point Ruth towards the closest relative to her, but then he pledges that he will protect her no matter what, if she needs him. Now, he even sends her away with a gift of grain, which is like a promise that he was going to honor this commitment to both of them. So Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz, they all seem to break the rules. They step outside of what would have been socially accepted behavior, and they risk their own security to protect and provide something for someone else. It's this idea of hesed over and over again. They could all see the bigger picture, and they chose to live for someone else with their needs before their own. Now we come to the next S word. So we've encountered surprise after surprise in this book, but this value of his said takes us further in the story with the idea of submission. Submission. I can almost sense some of you cringing a little bit. You're thinking, surely, Laura, there is a better S word for us to talk about. Snacks. You know, seconds. There's a good S word. Maybe even snails. Not as exciting, but still better, it seems, than submission. We don't automatically gravitate positively towards this word, submission, do we? And unfortunately, we haven't discovered this true depth and beauty that is held within this word. It's often been used as a negative obligation, and often on women. Or it's seen as kind of the deal breaker, like the trump card, where you can resentfully agree to somebody else's power play. And I don't know about you, but that doesn't seem to me at all to sound like the gospel or grace or the kind of life that Jesus came to bring. So I think there's got to be more than that going on. Because when we look to Jesus, we see ultimate submission, don't we? And we see the model that we are to follow. So what is more submissive than giving up your life for someone else? 
not just for one other person, but for a whole group of people, for the whole world, including a bunch of people who will tease and ridicule and reject and ignore you? What is more submissive than that? Jesus calls us time and time again to pick up our cross and to follow him. We are called to submit to one another out of reverence for him. Submission means those with power, they give it up and they serve other people. It means picking up the cross, but then laying down your life. It is striving for God's glory and for the other person, the good of the other, what Jesus did when he was on earth. Now, as one author puts it from the Gospel of Ruth, which Carl and I would both recommend you have a look at if you're interested in reading more about Ruth, um, she says, Like has said, submission is another of God's great power tools for changing human lives, renovating this fallen planet and putting our world to rights. It is the point where the kingdom of God powerfully intersects with human culture and begins to transform it from the inside out as those who follow Jesus learn to pour out their lives for others. One wonders how different our world would be, how changed the evening news, how sharply abuse and violence statistics would decline, and how our relationships with one another would be enriched. If God's people truly heeded the call to this kind of submission that Jesus advocates, and we got serious about looking out for others, this is how Jesus works through us, to bring wholeness to a broken world. Now in the book of Ruth, we meet three characters who haven't even met Jesus yet, but they exhibit this kind of life of hesed and submission to one another and to God. So the spirit of God is working within them and it doesn't just stay inside of them, it's flowing out wherever it can. It's kind of like their lives are a sieve and God's spirit is pouring out through every single interaction that they have on everyone around them. We meet Naomi, who submits herself to Ruth. She pours herself out for another person. Out of her emptiness, she keeps on giving, planning to secure a future for Ruth, which would mean her leaving her and her own future looking quite different. She sacrifices herself. She doesn't know how the story will end. We know how it may end, but she doesn't know whether her family will be redeemed. But in spite of this, she puts all her efforts into Ruth and she gives all that she has. Then Ruth, in turn, is submitting herself to Naomi. She pours herself out. By her volunteering to have a child, this will protect Elimelech's family line, Naomi's family line, from dying out. She is securing not only a husband for herself, but a family line for Naomi. And she's giving all that she has. And then Boaz, well, he is submitting himself as well. He pours himself out for both of these women. It doesn't faze him at all that these women are not his responsibility because he knows that if he is part of God's kingdom, then whether it's your responsibility or not is kind of irrelevant. He offers himself, his connections, his resources to save the futures of Naomi and Ruth. And he has an abundance that he still chooses to give out. Now, these characters in Ruth, their posture towards one another is one of hesed and submission. So what do we take from this? Is this just a snapshot in history, a character study into these three people that stays within this book and doesn't go anywhere else? Of course not. Already we see that Ruth sits within a bigger picture, 
this cosmic redemption that God is working through all of us as ordinary people. These people are just like us. We know their hurts and on some level or another may be able to identify with what they've gone through. But they're not kings or prophets or psalmists or another character in the Bible that we may struggle to relate to. They are ordinary people like us, simply committing themselves to God. They're open to his call of submission. And it's out of joy and sacrifice and trust in him, their creator. It's a bit of a funny mix, but it's one that ensures that the other is cared for and looked after. Their primary thought is for the other, someone else in their life. And we'll see next week how this story concludes and unfolds. But like Christ, they put another's needs before their own. And even if it's risky or uncomfortable or unknown, they choose to do this because submission becomes their default posture. And it's not a negative obligation, but a place of humble concern. Now, this is a different kind of submission to what some of us may have already seen. But we are instructed to submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. And it seems that it might be okay if this means that rules are broken and if socially accepted kind of canons of behavior might be challenged, if the cause of his said is paramount. This is the currency of God's kingdom here on earth, his said and submission. So where does it start? Submission to Christ. And maybe for you, that might mean a few early hours of prayer in the morning or a whole day or week at a retreat center. But I find for me, it means starting the day saying to God, like the song that we often sing in church, Lord, I need you. Every hour I need you. Every hour of today. And sometimes, most of the time, I don't really know what I'm doing, but I know that without the Lord in my life, I definitely don't know what I'm doing. Then it means submitting to someone else. And maybe that means breaking a few rules. Now, I love breaking out of socially accepted confines, but I've got to be careful that it doesn't become about us or about me. So the point is still, has said, for someone else to be helped. Now, I almost don't want to give examples of how this might look because then we'll see some parameters around it, which means that we could set what this might look like But I think that this has huge potential to be transformative um, in our world, in our families, at school, at uni, at work, in all spheres of our life. But I did read something just last night that made me think of this idea, and I'd like to read it to you. I'm going to read it from my iPhone. Sorry if that offends any of you. But I didn't have time to print it because I literally read it last night. And I hope this encourages us as to see a way that this has said could be worked out, but I also want to encourage us that there's no sort of boundaries. The scope could be huge. The title of the article is even quite shocking enough as it is, and it's from the Huffington Post. Texas Christians raise money to pay medical bills for atheist protester. It goes on to say, a Texas atheist who earlier this year fought to ban religious symbols on government property in his town is reportedly flabbergasted that Christians have offered to help him pay his bills. The the Tyler Morning Telegraph is reporting that Christians in Henderson County have raised around $400 to help Patrick Green, an atheist who is at risk of going blind in one eye due to a detached retina. 
He was forced to retire due to this condition, but earlier he had written letters to members of his um, government threatening a lawsuit if they did not remove a nativity scene from church property. Now, he eventually did file this lawsuit, but when he found out about his eye condition, he decided to drop the charges. He had to retire from his job and was facing mounting medical bills. So when local Christians wrote him with a check for $400 to help him pay his living expenses, he was more than surprised. And this is what they said. They said they wanted to do what real Christians are supposed to do, love you, and they wanted to help. Now, wherever that story goes, that is amazing. Um, And just reading that, I was getting goosebumps and thinking that that's huge, that somebody, that a group of people, even with somebody attacking them, wanting to shut them down, have still chosen to go out of their way for somebody that is um, the most antagonistic, probably, towards them and towards their cause. So just one case of this has said in submission, working itself out, And maybe it'll look completely different for you. It might look in a personal situation, one-on-one with someone that you know. It might be in your family. It might be bigger. It might be corporate or global. Um, But I'd like us to pray as we close today for this kind of openness to Christ and openness to these ideas of submission to him and the people around us. So let's pray. God, we first want to thank you and we love you and we're so humbled and in awe of you and first and foremost in our lives every day we want to submit to you Jesus we can't do it on our own strength and so we choose today to commit again to you and you working in our lives And we ask that you would help us to see situations around us where we might be able to be part of your redemptive work, your hesed and submission to people that are in our world. Help us to have an open eyes to this going on and also to how we might be able to respond. Help us to encourage each other with these kinds of stories as we begin to see more and more of what you're doing around us. And we're just so grateful that you choose to use us to spread your message of love and grace to the world. We pray these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Connection Point is a joint production between Connection Resources and Shore Community Christian Church. If you would like a free copy of today's message, please email us or phone us on 0800 90 30 90. To subscribe to our free podcasts or to listen to the latest message, go to connectionresources.org.nz.